Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Stephen Dozman. Today, I'm joined by Massimo Modenesi and Maria Vigno to discuss Modenesi's book, The Antagonistic Principle, Marxism and Political Action, published as part of the Historical Materialism book series from Brill and Haymarket Books. The book takes on the theories of Marx and Gramsci to develop a philosophical triad of subalternity, antagonism, and autonomy as a way of studying political subjectification under oppressive conditions and the potential for resistance. The book then looks at political developments in South and Latin America. Massimo Modenesi is professor and chair of the political and social sciences faculty at the Autonomous National University in Mexico, and is the author of numerous books on political theory and history in Latin America, his most recent in English being Subalternity, Antagonism, Autonomy, Constructing the Political Subject. He is a member of the Coordinating Committee of the International Gramsci Society. Maria Vignal served as a research assistant under Modenesi and now teaches while working on her PhD at the University of Washington in Seattle. So Maria and Massimo, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you. Um, So to kind of kick things off, uh, Massimo, we always like to introduce our authors or have them introduce themselves. So could you maybe give us a sense of what your research tends to focus on? Well, you say it enough. I'm a full professor at uh, UNAM in Mexico, and I'm working on uh, social movement and uh, also in uh, Marx's theory of uh, collective action. You write in the introduction that this book is a sort of expansion and development of an earlier book you wrote titled Subalternity, Antagonism, Autonomy. So to contextualize this newer book a bit, could you give us a brief summary of the main ideas you put forward there? Yeah, uh, well, uh, this new book actually contains a brief uh, revision of the main idea presented in the early one, which was published in 2014. In that previous book, I retraced the theoretical efforts built around three concepts developed within Marxist reflection on the subject and political action, which um, characterize processes of political subjectivation, as, as you said, Subalternity, antagonism, and, and autonomy. After reviewing this, their origin and the debates around them, I argued that it is possible to articulate them as complementary and analytical tools for a study of the formation and configuration of political subjectivities. And uh, those ideas serve as a stepping stone for, for the arguments presenter, presented in the newer book. In this new book, I begin by exploring the possibilities of reconfiguring a Marxist perspective of analysis of collective action and social movements vis-à-vis the dominant theories uh, in in the academic field. And I establish an agenda, and especially Marxist conceptual heritage, that uh, it, it is explicitly placed in the debate uh, which I think is opposed to existing theories, but also serves as a counterpoint, you can say, and establishes points of contact with them, since uh, even when their 
with their limits, they have the advantage of being not only more diffuse, but also more developed uh, at a theoretical and methodological level in the field of political sociology. Marxism, or you can say Marxisms in plural, uh, in their epochal crisis uh, retreated from the terrain of the analysis of the phenomenon processes of collective action, much more, I think, than uh, from any other fields, such, for example, the critique of capitalism, the understanding of state forms or of culture or ideology, as you say in the Marxist perspective. Thus, I maintain that uh, the class struggle formula contains elements that need to be not only updated, but deployed in their own connotation. It's struggle as, a, as you can say, your repertoire of action, uh, class as the sphere of confirmation of the subject. But I insist uh, with uh, its own accents and uh, from Marxist roots. In this sense, a step forward is, in my opinion, adding a battery of concepts such as subalternity, antagonism, and autonomy, which analytical potential in the study of processes of political subjectivation was explored in my previous book, uh, as I mentioned before. Um, in this sense, uh, I also include in the book a, a new uh, part, a, a methodological section to give clues about the concrete application of my proposal. And uh, uh, centering the field of empirical research uh, for a triadic reading of the processes of political subjectivation. An application that I, I, I will have to say that incidentally have been taken up by in many cases studies by colleagues and co-workers. Early in the book, you look at Marx's place in contemporary discourse around sociology, political movements, and economics, and see a huge gap where Marxist theory once was. And one example you bring up is in analysis of events such as the Arab Spring or Occupy Wall Street, where most of the analysis is focused on their use of social media to organize. The result is a lot of study of the form at the expense of the content of these movements. Can you explain what you mean here and how it's indicative of the larger trends you describe in this section? Um, this reduction of the analytical capacity to make those features visible uh, and the political dimension sort of like more central in contemporary social movements is also related to the relative retreat of Marxism or Marxist analysis from the study of collective action and social, social political movements. Um, its place was taken up instead by other post-Marxist or anti-Marxist perspectives whose focus was uh, sometimes much more on the elements of form that you mentioned, Stephen, uh, like the use of social media, uh, often overstating their importance and the, the central place that they they had or didn't have. Um, and there are different reasons behind the relative retreat of Marxism from this field. Uh, some of them are related to the losses uh, suffered in historical process. Uh, I'm thinking of the defeat of revolutionary socialist movements in the final 20 years of the 20th century and the relegation of Marxism from universities and other spaces of creation and dissemination of knowledge. But there are more substantive reasons related to this retreat um, that are more central to the argument of this book, which is the absence of a systematic and a specifically Marxist agenda to think about political action. 
Uh, and it is from that diagnosis that also the main goal of this book emerges, which is to recover and rearticulate that agenda. Uh, and in that sense, the element that distinguishes Marxism from these other post-Marxist or anti-Marxist theories of social movements is the concept of social class and class struggle occupying a central you write that much Marxist analysis of- in recent years has focused on class and the dynamics of capital. What's been lost here is class struggle and related questions of subjectivation and agency. Can you explain this struggleless approach and how your analysis is intended as a corrective supplement? This is related, I think, to the two levels in which Marxist analysis always moves which is a more structural one, um, like Massimo said, the, the, the one that, that sort of like focuses on exploitation and the contradiction between labor and capital, and a more subjective one, the expression of those structural contradictions, right? And then there's obviously the dialective relationship between the two. Uh, and it's true that in recent analyses, like you say, Stephen, uh, Marxist uh, studies or Marxist thoughts on class has focused more on the on the structural terrain uh, and the many complexities that those analyses entail, which are many and are, are complicated. Uh, however, I don't think there has been a corresponding revival in the study of uh, subjective dimension of class, which is class struggle. Uh, and this is important because it is in struggle in the subjective expressions of those structural tensions that actors are configured as political subjects. It is in struggle that they enter in conflict, that they organize. Um, the book recovers the formulation by E.P. Thompson to talk about this issue, in which he says that it is actually class struggle that leads to the conformation of classes. Um, and the book sort of adds to that idea by stating that it is in struggle that political subjectivities are formed. Oh, yes. Um, um... Well, um, I think that the class perspective should not be essentialized, uh, but uh, there was a reaction that led to denying or uh, denying it or relegating it uh, to the point of making the uh, mostly invisible. There is also a tendency to think that it's uh, it, of it statically as a mere social nomenclature, and its fundamental aspect was lost. Uh, which is uh, that class rela- relations are relation of struggle. Uh, in this sense, uh, class seen as a state of things, as a situation of inequality, as a static uh, asymmetry, uh, cannot be take us to the relationship that underlies. That is, the, those uh, structural ones the, derived from exploitation and the struggle for the appropriation of material wealth and the conditioned relationship and also processes of its production. So uh, at the same time, um, and that is uh, the aspect that most interests me, the antagonism, the confrontation in subjective terms uh, on the part of social sector that identify and related to each other based on the struggle, not as uh, objective data, but uh, as subjective factor, as subjective aiding. Uh, it is this field that the analysis must be deepened and fully deployed. Uh, I guess Maria surely has something to add because she had a research on the concept of social class too when she was working with me uh, in Mexico. 
you take a brief detour through Gromsky's theory of the subaltern class, where you write, Gromsky is a theorist not of subalternity, but of the escape from subalternity, of the historical construction of an autonomous social and political subject capable of contending against hegemony. His interest in understanding subalterns is to foment their spirit of scission, to develop and follow the red thread of their autonomous initiative, not to idolize it or take it for granted. Can you unpack this a bit in how Gromsky sees subalternity in its relation to subjective interpolation? Yes, um, I will start from the observation that the predominant interpretation of Gramsci thought are dislocated between uh, subalternist reading uh, and hegemonistic readings. That is, uh, between uh, the emphasis on the exaltation of the subaltern as the place of the oppressed, resistance, but always defeated, uh, and uh, an existing but always unfinished subject. And uh, to the antipodes, the emphasis of the subject capable of exercising the hegemony. Uh, given subject capable of expansion and political, politically effective. In the words of Gramsci himself, leader and dominant. Uh, in both readings, uh, I see an essentialism and a tendency towards simplification that lies precisely in not asking the Gramscian question and of how the subaltern can become a hegemonic, hegemonist or hegemonic. In this passage, a series of questions unfold that Gramsci finds in embryo uh, in the subaltern classes, in, the, in its contradictory conscientiousness, in its conception of the world attached to common sense, uh, in its spontaneity. Issues that uh, can potentially be developed through a spirit of splitting, uh, separation, independence, and autonomy in the progressive generation of a collective will national and popular, says Gramsci, through diffuse organic intellectual emerging from within them who led and guide a war of position in the cultural field, which is uh, intervened uh, with the political, uh, which implies leadership and organization. And uh, the point of articulation is the central point, uh, that, that of auton- autonomy, independence, and class self-organization that I think it became a blind spot uh, and I believe uh, largely uh, due to, uh, to the defeat and crisis of the socialist and communist revolutionary movement in the 20th century. Uh, at the same time, I think the keys that, to Gramsci's reading in, of the process of political subjectivation at a theoretical level lies in this dim- precise dimension, as well as, I uh, should be say, the coordinates, coordinates of uh, possible recomposition of a mass anti-capitalistic movement in our time, which uh, uh, will not be born only for an accurate theory, but neither, I would say, in the absence of it. Moving on, you put subalternity in a tripart dynamic, along with antagonism and autonomy, that work together to form a particular form of political subjectivity. Can you explain these two other terms and how you see them working together to form this kind of particular form of political subjectivation? Yes, well, for, for my part, uh, contributing with uh, my own grain of sand, uh, I wanted to point out that just as Marxism views reality in a tripartite way based on relation of domination, 
dynamics of conflict and processes of emancipation, uh, there are correlates to think and understand processes of subjectivation that correspond to them. Uh, these correlates uh, have already been tried, but separate, separately, as theories of subalternity, theories of antagonism, or theories of autonomy. And I believe, for my part, that each of these concepts uh, designates a condition, or you, you will say a dimension, of the processes uh, of political subjectivation. So uh, subalternity as the condition and experience of subordination and exploitation, antagonies as the experience of an insubordination and autonomy as the uh, that of uh, self-determination. And uh, in these processes of subjectivation, they they are always, usually combined unevenly, unevenly uh, in different proportion, depending on the circumstances, prompting different trajectories and configurations. Uh, As a whole, uh, I think they form a tripartite reading lens that allows us in synchronous terms to appreciate the contradiction and to decipher the combination. And at a diachronic level to account account for uh, non-linear processes. This in very synthetic term, because uh, it is a theoretical proposal that has a certain degree of complexity, also, basically, in this basic formulation, it is quite simple. Maybe Maria can help me to to, to be more clear at this point. Uh, I I can I can add a little bit more about the background of this argument, which was uh, was the subject of that other book that you guys mentioned at the beginning of the interview. Um, these three concepts of alternative antagonism and autonomy are part of the Marxist lexicon, the Marxist vocabulary that has been used. Um, within Marxism, both in its academic uh, variants and its more political expressions, to think about phenomena of political subjectivation, like Massimo was saying, right? Each one of them referring to a different experience of the relationship with capital, domination, conflict, or emancipation. Um, Their usage, however, sort of like um, has not been so straightforward in the field of like subjectivities. Um, and additional, these concepts emerged at different times from different authors. Um, you know, they emerged from different concerns and very particular agendas. They had their own development within Marxism and their own um, issues or controversies. And um, I think Massimo's proposal finds a way to articulate them in a single theoretical perspective, uh, which is sustained by by the recognition that these are homologous categories, right? In the sense that they analyze the same phenomenon and complementary because they each, you know, capture a specific experience. Um, and the, yeah, the final element of this recognition is what Matt was saying, sort of political subjectivities are uneven combinations of the three experiences and the three types of relations with capital. And the theoretical framework or, or theoretical proposition, uh, like Matthew said, it was used in uh, some years ago by a working group back at UNAM, um, which analyzed the series of social movements in Mexico and Latin America using the conceptual triad, adapting it for empirical analysis. Um, that was the last thing that I worked on before I moved here to the US for grad school. But anyway, uh, a chapter on the operationalization of the theoretical framework um, is actually included in this, in this book. Yes. Moving along, 
you look at you look at two terms, resistance and rebellion. While you do distinguish between the two, you also see them as more closely related than first glance might suggest. So can you unpack these two terms and how they function as expressions or dispositions of the subaltern subjectivity we've been developing? Yes, I will be. I will have a short answer on this. Uh, the I think the notion of resistance uh, has been recovered and placed at the center of the analysis, starting from the retreat and the defeats of the socialist and communist movements in the twentieth century. Uh, since uh, it characterized a defensive phase of the struggle, uh, particularly against uh, neoliberalism. And the notion of rebellion in Marxism had a critical connotation since it designates a pricing of subaltern classes, but without sufficient direction and politicity. Uh, but he has recovered a certain value as long as always in the period of retreat uh, mentioned, it accounts uh, to, for the juncture or moments uh, that went daily resistant to more forceful action on, of insubordination. So I think that the distinction between the two and their respective placement in the field of subalternity and antagonism is useful uh, as it refines and clarifies concepts. Uh, at the same time, as you point out, and, uh, and as I maintain, and insofar as subalternity and antagonism intersect in the processes of political subjectivation, resistance and rebellion also intervene uh, in their corresponding famous struggles. Turning to the topic of antagonism specifically, which was developed a lot in Marx's own work, you argue that there are a couple levels to it, one more structural or systemic and the other subjective. So can you kind of unpack this dual understanding of antagonism? Yes, uh, because I I would say that all Marxism since Marx uh, is founded on the idea of class antagonism, that is, uh, of class struggle. However, uh, it is a principle that has different levels and has given rise to different interpretation of the social constitution of capitalism. In the first place, uh, it designates a structural plane in which classes are opposed to the extent that they embody the question between capital and labor. Uh, In this sense, uh, it is a conflict that lies in the social relation of production and that corresponds to the existence of the classes in themselves. But secondly, uh, the contrast uh, translates into the subjective confrontation between classes constituted as subject. You will say classes for themselves. Uh, I consider that for the purpose of clarity and in order to deepen the analysis, uh, particularly in uh, relation to the processes of subjectivation, uh, the concept should be deployed uh, exclusively, I think, uh, on the subjective level, not to separate it for, for a stru- structural one, but to give it its specificity and to be able to develop the Marxist question of political subjectivation. And uh, one, the, this is because uh, the same uh, etymological route and many users of the concept point in, it, uh, in this direction. Uh, and uh, I think... Uh, I maintain then that the antagonistic principle is the starting point and at the same time the arrival of all Marxist uh, theorization on the conformation of political subjectivation, subjectivities that, has, that have uh, arisen and, and in the class struggle that characterize uh, capitalist society. Uh, maybe Baria can add something about this. 
Um, I can I can say something sort of uh, about the idea of the centrality of antagonism in the in the Marxist theory of political subjectivation, uh, as has been you know proposed in this book and the other one, even sort of related to the title, the antagonistic principle. Um, and that's just that uh, when thinking about the conceptual triad, we find or we um, we recognize that antagonism is, um, you know, the subjective notion that refers to the experience of insubordination and struggle that we've talked about. Uh, antagonism is a bridge between subalternity and autonomy, right? It's the necessary passage between them, both in a synchronic way, when we think about uneven combinations of these three experiences in specific moments, uh, and also in a diachronic way, when we think about processes, right? Thinking about sequences in the Confirmation of political subjectivities. I don't know, going from subalternity to antagonism to autonomy, back to subalternity, or other combinations. So antagonism can be thought of as this connection between the two, and in that sense, it is the dynamic element that gives mobility to the to the triad and thus the centrality of it. You turn to Gramsci's idea of passive revolutions, which would seem to be a contradiction in terms, and this becomes even more clear in some of the other ways he phrases it, saying it's a revolution without a revolution or a conservative innovation. Can you explain what passive revolutions are and how they function to re-subalternize subjects? Well, um, the notion of uh, passive revolution tries to synthesize and reveal an apparent contradiction. The idea of a process of transformation that at the same time uh, does not imply an activation from below, but an initiative from above, uh, that while promoting certain changes, ultimately aims to the conservation of substantial power relations. Passive revolution, Gramsci argued, uh, often occur to remedy a crisis of uh, hegemony, an organic crisis in which the ruling class cannot dominate as before, but at the same time, the subordinated, the subaltern classes cannot overthrow them. An impasse uh, that remembers uh, the one that led Marx to develop the idea of Bonapartism. However, the notion of passive revolution has the virtue uh, of including the dimension of the lack of uh, prominence of the subaltern classes. That is, uh, their deficit of activity. Uh, Kermshi maintains that they are limited to sporadic and inorganic subversive action, uh, which allows the ruling classes to take the initiative, uh, retake control and passivate them, resubalternize them, by making concessions in exchange for demobilization. Uh, concessions, social control, and the Bonapartist format, uh, which we can associate to the certain formats of populism, uh, both uh, progressive or conservative. And, um, uh, these are the key uh, to this operation aimed to reestablish domination uh, on the fir- firm ground of hegemony. That is, obtaining the active or passive consensus uh, necessary to stabilize the social order. Uh, I believe uh, that uh, this critical formula uh, of Gramsci uh, allows us to decipher ways of solving hegemonic crisis to weigh degrees of transformation and conservation and activation and passivization, uh, which reveals what appears contradictory as a dialectical synthesis of 
that offers us also an important key to reading uh, at the historical historiographic level, uh, since uh, that allows characterizing medium-term processes that occur in different regions of the world under different formats, more or less authoritarian, more or less progressive, but also since we can also recognize uh, passive revolution as ongoing political projects uh, before they become historic, historical processes, uh, they can be, this can be uh, an analytical tool to think about one of the possible responses to the COVID-19 crisis in terms of new formats, state intervention and populism driven from above with a certain degree of reforms and concession, but uh, substantially oriented towards social control to guarantee the preservation of the basic foundation of the existing relation of domination. Uh, The passive revolution is a resource of the ruling classes. Uh, They they do not always occur, but they usually occur to face a challenge that uh, this is destabilize their dominance, uh, which can be challenged posed by the lower classes and endogenous or partially exogenous uh, systemic crises as they're currently, they're currently as is uh, currently the case. Turning to South and Latin American developments in Marxist and Gramscian scholarship, you find that passive revolution has been largely absent from a lot of discussion around hegemony. One concept we get in its place is the dictatorship without hegemony, which has certain parallels, but also some points of difference. Can you speak to this development a bit? Yeah, it will be just a bit because it's a a punctual question. Uh, What happens uh, here is that uh, this is a concept that has been mostly used to account for processes of a conservative or, I would say, reactionary nature. It is true that Gramsci, uh, recovering it from the 19th century, used it to understand fascism, but also the New Deal and Fordism in the United States. Uh, in relation to fascism, I uh, was interested in observing behind the uh, reactionary and coercive uh, form social reforms uh, and the uh, construction of consensus of, of hegemony. I would say uh, the formula of dictatorship without hegemony is used only in uh, in the in the prison notebooks only in the case of Italian unification under the Kingdom of Piedmont, a state operation based on ter- territorial annexation and conquest. Uh, also not exempt from national support. But it is an exceptional case, uh, while the passive revolution is a recurring resource in world history. In particular, I think it is uh, an excellent analytical tool to see not so much the dictatorship, but hybrid formats that that serves to reconfigure hegemony, that is domination, based fundamentally on consensus also by governments uh, that we can generically call progressive. In more recent decades, you point out that there have been some substantial anti-capitalist and anti-neoliberal movements in South and Latin America, which has given Marxist scholars new historical material to enter into a dialogue with. Can you speak to some of the key elements of these movements and how Gramscian scholarship has responded to them? Well, um, yes, the anti-neoliberal mobilization of the 19 and 2000s in uh, Latin America had a popular component. Uh, 
politicized uh, the, resist, the res- resistance agenda. They emerged uh, from the defensive phase. Uh, we resorted to new formats of struggle and organization, but they did not disdain the old one, the old ones, and uh, not infrequently, infrequently uh, used the recourse of uprising and rebellion. Its eruption marked the regional political scenario in many ways. Uh, it led to a political turn that settled in the electoral sphere and a change of governments that went from being led by neoliberal parties to progressive ones, uh, including in various countries with the almost complete modification of the party system. And in free country in particular, uh, there were new constitution that was uh, written. This had an impact on the, academy, on the academy in terms of a wave of uh, studies on social movements, which were highly illustrative, but which, with few exceptions, I have to say, uh, did not depart from uh, the dominant methodological theoretical frameworks. Gramsham's studies uh, did not always respond to the challenge, but uh, when it did occur, uh, it was on the basis of studies and subaltern classes based on the identification of hubs of uh, organic intellectual, the capacity of, to build a popular national collective will, and the counter-hegemonic capacity, uh, that is to say, the expansion of an hegemonic alternative. I would say maybe Maria has something to add with this. Um, sure. Uh, I think the this cycle of struggles in, in Latin America from mid-90s to mid-2000s, um, like Massimo said, brought forth uh, new and old elements in the social movements that emerged. Um, for example, they had a popular component resorted to uprising and rebellion, but new elements were, for example, that they included a demand for autonomy, right, as a practice of self determination and then uh, notions of uh, outer territoriality as well. And all of these, uh, like we said, reactivated an agenda for analysis and studies um, that try to to get at, uh, to understand the these movements that swept the, re- the region and uh, led to what has been called by, by some people a sort of uh, change of epoch. Uh, and as we mentioned at the beginning, other other post-Marxist or anti-Marxist theoretical perspectives have been more dominant, uh, at least in the academy, in their interpretations and and attempts to explain and understand these politicizations and these mobilizations. And um, the place where Gramscian scholarship, uh, which, like you said, Stephen, in your question, sort of like where does Gramscian scholarship, um, you know, what has they what have they had to say is in these in the analysis of how those social movements led to the installation of progressive governments in the region uh, using the concept of fascist revolution that Massimo explained before. Even more recently, you see this cycle of more emancipatory political movements as having perhaps come to an end, or at least having found themselves blunted in their efforts, subverted and diverted in terms of their energy. What are some of the general trends you see happening in this regard? Well, the, this cycle ended with the uh, installation of a series of progressive uh, governments in most of the countries of the region, governments uh, that undertook the different forms of passive revolution, but with a common pattern. Uh, demobilization uh, dispersed the accumulated force, 
uh, although some experience and organizational trenches remain. Uh, the great mobilization that occurred later uh, were from different actors, uh, without the popular and classy trait of the previous one, or simply dispersed without the politicize, politicization uh, and uh, anti-neoliberal articulation of the previous decade. However, due to past experience and those that took place then, uh, there remains in Latin America a notable resistance reserve of the organized, organized uh, sector of subaltern classes. I don't know what, uh, maybe Maria, maybe Maria has something to, to say about this. Yeah, I think it's it's interesting how uh, the question, right, how you say um, that these emancipatory political movements uh, found themselves blunted in their efforts. And, and I think, um, yeah, the concept of, uh, the Gramscian concept of passive revolution helps us understand how, you know, a series of, of um, progressive governments emerge from these political movements and to understand also the relationship between the two after that. Um, these governments uh, in Latin America, while they included some of the voices and demands of um, actors in social movements, uh, they did enact a criticism of neoliberalism. They expanded um, an agenda for social justice, for economic regulation, for redistribution. Uh, while they did all that, they also deactivated and demobilized, um, subalternized, we can say, uh, subjects and actors that had been the protagonists of the struggles, right? Um, they absorbed or even negated other types of protests. Um, we can think about indigenous uh, or autonomous uh, protests uh, or movements. And in general, these, these governments installed processes controlled from above that did not modify the systems of domination or the power relations. Uh, and additionally, sort of more towards the later years of these governments, uh, or the governments that remained at least, uh, around 2013 or so, they took even a more regressive profile. Um, yeah. To bring this discussion to a close, you end the book discussing some key dynamics of the current situation in South and Latin America, both the recent turns to the right with intensified programs of austerity and extractivism, as well as a resurgence in certain emancipatory critiques in political movements. So can you maybe give us both a sense of the increasing issues the recent the region faces, as well as some of the movements in their efforts to combat these issues? Yeah, this is um, uh, a difficult uh, question. Because, uh, but uh, I will say very quickly that um, I think that the demobilization promoted by progressive governments, as well as their limits and their own crisis, opened a door that uh, has allowed the return of the right sign as a significant number of countries in recent years. Uh, at the same time, uh, the rights, new and old, uh, quickly show uh, that they do not have the capacity of to establish a new hegemony. So uh, progressism uh, itself regains a certain strength by uh, being associated with govern, govern, governments uh, that promoted a moderate return of uh, of the regulatory intervention of the state, a certain national pride, sometimes with uh, anti-imperialist overtones, uh, a certain capacity uh, for redistribution at the time of the boom of commodities. But uh, 
I would say that uh, the capacity for self-organization and mobilization from below uh, that has uh, accumulated in resistance against both uh, neoliberal and progressive governments is also revitalized and maybe may find a favorable situation to sustain demands and exigencies uh, revendication in the con- in this context context of generalized uh, crisis that has always uh, threatened to affect uh, the popular sectors much more all right that brings us to the end of the book so as a final question massimo what are you working on now well, um, I'm working uh, on a book when I'm just doing the research now on uh, Gramsci theory of uh, political subjectivation, but uh, with a special insight on uh, concepts uh, that are in the prison notebooks. So it is uh, an investigation on the prison notebooks as a uh, as center of the Gramsci thought uh, on political subjectivation, and I'm just doing some uh, trying to, to settle some links uh, on concepts that are not linked enough because the Gramsci's writing was uh, uh, was not easy in, uh, in jail and uh, it was sick. So uh, a lot of connection has to be established. Uh, and so this is my actual uh, work. Wonderful. Well, Massimo Modanesi and Maria Vignal, thank you so much for being with us. 